Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? Doing great. We've also got with us Oliver Matchin. Hey, Oliver. How you doing? Hello. I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing excellent. Cool. Uh, Oliver was the sound effects recordist for Mad Max Fury Road, which is super exciting. And I'm going to stop right now and say spoiler alert, because we're going to be talking about this film in depth. If you haven't seen it, pause the podcast, go see the movie, come <laughs> back, and then hit play again. Definitely uh, go see this movie. It is a fun, <laughs> exciting, <laughs> different movie than what you've seen before. It's awesome. Uh, Oliver's also worked on the documentary, It Might Get Loud, and you can find him on Twitter at Oliver Matchin or at devilstonefilms.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Renee underscore Coronado, and Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Sorry, just uh, is it Devil's Stone or Devil's Tone? Oh, well, you've hit the nail on the head. It's either. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. a bit of a it, it's a it comes back to where i grew up in rural devon in england there's a big lump of granite called the devil's stone that sits outside the church and they they have to turn it over every year on november the 5th to stop plague and pestilence for the year but being then in sounds then it was also it could be devil's tone ah double entendre there uh-huh well, I'm That's very tricky. glad that someone's flipping that rock over and stopping the world from <laughs> yes. pestilence. I, I had no idea they but were doing I, I'm it. I'm figuring someone job. stopped, and that's where <laughs> Mad Max was then born out ah. of. <laughs> it's all so clear now. So let's get into a little bit of your background, Oliver. How did you get to South Africa? What's your kind of history, and how did you get started into the production of this film? I suppose it goes back to starting, if you like, right at the beginning, at school, I got involved, worked in the BBC local radio station, that kind of thing. It's kind of where an initial interest of sound came from. At that point, I was hoping I was going to become a studio manager at the BBC, but then they were sacking them all and everything was becoming self-op. I did kind of, you know, a media course, 16 to 18, left that, went to go and work in London. I was a runner in a production, post-production corporate company. And then I ended up at um, Pilots Productions that um, made the Lonely Planet, which then became Globe Trekker series, um, Discovery, PBS, all around the world, and became a traveling location recordist off the back of that. It wasn't any kind of, I hadn't, you know, done major sound degrees or anything like that. So it was completely kind of self-taught. Did that for a number of years and was always traveling and on the road, which was great, you know, being paid to travel the world. And then along the lines, I met my now wife. My um, son was born. And at the time, it's kind of around the time of the big crash, economic crash in London. And um, my wife grew up in Botswana initially and then South Africa. She, we met in London and kind of saw it as an opportunity. Perhaps we'll come this way and, you know, move to South Africa and see what South Africa has to offer. So I started out doing kind of, you know, TV stuff, documentaries, which I um, still do, which is kind of the core of my work. But um, I met a, a good friend, um, Ivan Milborough, who's a sound mixer here. And he and I, um, I literally just stepped off the plane when I arrived in South Africa and I worked on a movie called Spud with um, John Cleese. Um, I just went in as a kind of second assistant boom op. I mean, it was on my doorstep where I live. There is no industry in, in the film world, but this film was being done here. Met Ivan, we became good friends. I think it was kind of a year or two later, then he had a call to go and do be a boom op on Mad Max. And he wasn't quite sure whether to go or not because, and that Spud was coming around now for a second movie. 
he thought it was probably better for his career path for him to go and be a mixer on Spud than a boom op. So past um, Ben Osmo, who was the head of department on Mad Max, um, my details. And they kind of, you know, Ben and I had a Skype interview. And I think it was about 10 days later, I was suddenly found myself in Swakopmund in Namibia, surrounded by huge amounts of sand as we started pre-production for Mad Max. Wow. So Namibia, did you say? Yeah, Namibia is where Mad Max was shot. It was actually, okay, I thought it was, was shot in South Africa. In well, a, um, we, so Moonlighting Films was the co-production company, the South African mm-hmm. co-production company, but the actual location was Namibia and most of the crew was South African or Australian okay. um, with some other internationals. So, and then a month of it was done at Cape Town Film Studios. There are a few kind of stuff that we did at the end for a couple of weeks in Cape Town. Cool. So you started pre-production, meaning what exactly? Kind of building our sound truck, the Osmotron, as it became known. Um, we had a 4 by 4 vehicle, which Ben, you know, instead of having his sound cart tra- traditionally, that wasn't going to cut it on a road movie traveling at, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour across the desert. Nobody was going to keep up. So we built into his vehicle huge racks of radio mic receivers. I think he had four 788s all linked up, um, his desk. That was central control that everything came back to, and then he had to retransmit on again to also the traveling video village. So it was kind of almost like a a mini OB, the way uh, the technical side of the sync filming got conceived. You know, I think we had available, I think it was like 30 or 40 channels of radio mic. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous trying to keep track of that many transmitters. And the idea was that before what I then later did was the sync stuff was we were hiding mics on the vehicles and trying to get whatever sync effects at the time um, with the shot, as well as the limited amount of dialogue that you've no doubt seen in the movie. Um, capture that as well so you know Ben had us hiding you know radio mic transmitters anywhere we could find to place them on the different vehicles and then his Osmotron collected all those multiple frequencies although aside from that there was an extra complexity it was not necessarily his vehicle could never perhaps not be close enough to pick up those radio mics so those radio mics actually transmitted into a what we called pods that went inside the war rig, the big truck that Charlize is driving. There was local receivers in there, and then those signals were multiplexed together and then went to a high-power transmitter, which then could send it up to kind of two kilometers away if um, our vehicles were you know, going to be in danger of being in shot and that kind of thing. So was the Osmotron moving while you yes. were recording? Like, so yeah, you guys yeah. were actually following the action just yeah. out of camera? Exactly. I mean, there was, it was like the whole armada that you had the, every department were all jumping in their four by fours and and traveling along as well at the uh, same time trying to keep up. Because literally, I mean, they would be going, you know, five, six, seven kilometers across the desert, turn around, loop around, come back again, or even further. So kind of the the whole unit was trying to travel as well. It was, it was quite a feat to make that happen. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me about watching the closing credits roll is usually when you're watching the closing credits on a big action film like this, you see just screens and screens and screens just jammed full of digital artists and digital animators. 
And on this one, it was screens and screens and screens jammed full of fabricators and stuntmen and armorers and, and yeah, and yeah. I mean, just all of the just massive amount of practical effects that went into what this shoot was was just flat out impressive to me. George's attention to detail, I suppose, in hindsight, I can say because I I hadn't ever really done anything like this before, having come from a TV background. But I mean, his attention to detail is astonishing. The production design. As you say, it's all practical, real stunts. There were over, I think, 150 vehicles built from the ground up. It wasn't that they got a an old Ford Fiesta car, ripped the body off the top of it and put on just, you know, a new funky shape. That whole chassis, the engine, the gearbox, everything about that vehicle was built from the ground up. And just some of the most amazing designs and thoughts, I mean... I don't know what some people were drinking, smoking, or whatever else when they conceived <laughs> <laughs> that this might be a good idea. But um, my my favorite vehicle by far was the the one with the guitar player on it. I thought that was the wagon. coolest thing ever. The duff duff. <laughs> <laughs> like when that guy showed up and the whole theater laughed. But it was just like you know, and it's it's like he's up there on the front of this this rig just yeah. jamming out, and it's like perfectly in sync with the score, but yet. His guitar is getting panned and moved around exactly <laughs> yeah. with where he is in the mix. And I'm just sitting there throwing my hands in the air thinking that's the coolest thing ever. The fight scene with him at the yeah. conclusion, I could not stop smiling. Like, it was just so... There's so many just wildly inventive things about it. Now, as Renee was saying, like the practical effects really work in the film, especially in a world where uh, we're so used to digital effects. All this, it really grounds the film and makes it so much more visceral. But the thing that makes those also work is how awesome the sound is. That It was not only a really great sounding movie, it was loud. It was so yeah. loud. Like it seemed like everything had to be louder than the next thing. Yeah. But, and sometimes I find that to be a really bad thing where you just feel like you're getting hammered over the head. Just for the sake but of it, But because yeah. this movie was so gritty and so uh, realistic in its insanity uh the the volume actually just added to the tension and really worked in a way that i've never heard a loud film work like this before mm. and i think the sound effects that you obviously had a hand in recording really added to that because they had to be cutting through the music there was never really a time where the music beat the sound effects or the sound effects beat the music it was just everything piled on to each other and really getting at you no it was i wish i could describe the mornings when we got to set we go through our setups and do all boring time code related things but when the vehicles started starting up in the morning particularly the giga horse i mean still that's well it's not it's so much it's not even just the sound the ground shook when that thing started up your whole which one's the giga horse that's um immortan joe's that the two cadillacs grafted together Ah, okay. That, like kind of monster truck style with two yeah, Cadillacs on top of the, it. The yeah. two V8 engines side by side. I mean, I'm not a petrol head or was, knew nothing kind of mechanically before I set into this. And then as the course of my recording, spent a lot of time with the mechanics and kind of learning my way around where to find, you know, unique sounds for each vehicle and place a microphone. That vehicle, Every time it went past, everyone kind of just stopped to look in awe at just the ridiculousness <laughs> of the size of it, the, the feel of it, that 
just vibrated through me. I mean, it was kind of, that was one of my battles was trying to somehow capture that. And I'm not quite sure if I ever really did do it justice. And I'm kind of puzzled ever since about how I would have done it had I done it again. (laughs) Well, so what kind of setup were you guys putting together out there? I mean, I I think using radio mics is going to be a limiting factor anyway, because they only have so much headroom that they can transmit and so much frequency range that they can transmit. Yeah, so I mean that was kind of the reason why we got the vehicle effects recording unit off the ground. Um, because clearly we could see you've got things like the director PA systems blasting out instructions to move left, move right, getting in the way of your nice clean audio. You've also got the two camera vehicles, the edge arms, which are blowing nitrogen across the lens very loudly. So as the camera comes nice and close past the vehicle, you suddenly hear the sound of that coming by as well. Having said that, I mean, apparently kind of 90% of the sync effects audio is in the movie. Um, So there was Ben Osmo, main unit mixer, and there was then Derek Mansfeld who took on the action unit which kind of developed. There was apparently never going to be an action unit and we all kind of knew secretly there would be. And then (laughs) a month into filming, suddenly another unit was erected and Derek came up from Cape Town. He's he's based down there. He and Ian Arrow, his boom up, got a lot, did all the stunt stuff. And we're, again, placing radio mic transmitters and, you know, up by the exhaust of the motorbikes, putting stuff on the war rig to get good sync effects. But all of that was then going to need to be enhanced by, you know, specific recordings where we had pure control over, okay, we're going to run this vehicle at these revs for this long, do a gear change or whatever. So, you know, it was was our time, not the camera department's time for once. And you had the stunt drivers for that as well? Uh, A couple of times I had stunt drivers. Mainly I actually had um, mechanics. Okay. Again, trying to do what we were doing was always in conflict with the main units because those camera car picture cars were there to be in front of the camera and then they were the sound department being the thorn in their side. No, 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 bring it over here. I need to go and play with it for a day. So trying to work around the schedule of filming was quite difficult. So trying to get hold of those vehicles in a suitable place to record them as well. And the stunt drivers are all required to be on camera as well. So having a mechanic with me that kind of knew the limitations of this is what I could do with it before I broke it. The stunties were always breaking the vehicles and the mechanics mm-hmm. were cleaning up after them. I mean, there were literally, there were 24-hour shift systems going to turn those vehicles around to have them back on set the following day. So, yeah, I had... Did you get to ride in any of them? I rode in quite a few. How'd they handle? I didn't didn't get to drive. They were very bumpy, very lumpy, large amounts of metal sticking to my ribs, my butt, or anywhere else. They're not really designed for passenger <laughs> passenger space, <laughs> particularly holding a bag, you know, with a 788 in it and the rest of it. It became a bit of a theme. I did, I think, under my watch, broke two of them. So <laughs> let me think. There was the ripsaw, the bullet farmer driving the Caterpillar track vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I just spent hours rigging that thing, putting, you know, mics around the engine, exhaust, that kind of thing, but also cabling down to the tank tracks to try and get, you know, unique separation of those sounds away from the engine sound. 
and um, me and I think the tracks had some really great moments in the mix. I thought. Yeah, I'm kind of. I I need to. I'm gonna go and watch it, the movie again tomorrow. Um, I think the cinema I watched it in didn't really do it justice. Tomorrow I'm gonna go and see it IMAX, which I um I'm looking forward to with my wife. I saw it in IMAX. It I'm, was impressive. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that IMAX and 3D. I think it will be the the way forward. I think it's therefore a, a better sound system. Um, I was kind of aware of the people behind me in their sweet wrappers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the Ripsaw, the mechanic I actually had from there, he was from the World Rally Championship. I mean, they sourced mechanics from around the world. Another mechanic I had worked in Outback, Bush, Australia, fixing trucks. Was ne- He'd never been on a movie set before. Another one, I say, a guy from the World Rally Championship. Other guys that have done movies before and you know, we knew the drill and other people that were completely green to it. But they were a kind of, I don't know if I use this expression, but pigs and shit, really. <laughs> 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 so I was set out on the, uh, having just rigged this and we were driving in a straight line with the um, rip saw and one of the tank tracks broke and we went careering off the road. I mean, I really thought, and as to the driver, that we were going to roll it at that point because... All, suddenly all of that drive went into one track and there's nothing on the other side and so it goes into a spin and wants to kind of turn over um fortunately we stayed upright but um that... did you stay in record oh the machine is in record and i've got the recording of the snapping of those tracks wow nice. but that that little escapade cost i believe about twenty thousand us it's um, wow. 10000 for a, a, one track, and it cost 10000 US to have it shipped. Of course, they didn't. I don't quite remember what, how they resolved it, whether they were able to do a temporary fix. The steel cable that runs through the tracks snapped, and that's how it came apart. And then there was the uh, Elvis, the car was called. Um, in the chase at the beginning, as Charlie starts to make a run for it, there's kind of a um, hot rod looking vehicle that does a crash, but does a 360 spin in the air and drops in a hole. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That That's the Elvis vehicle. And that had a V16 engine in it, which Jeez. I then found out apparently is quite rare. Its history was they bought it off a guy in the States, I think, who had put it in a dragster. And prior to that, it was the engine out of one of those vehicles that push jumbo jets off the stand at the airport. um but yes that it apparently in my defense i the mechanic did kind of try and reassure me to say they'd been having kind of problems with it but um while again it was in my care it then broke so it became a bit of an ongoing joke about sending vehicles to die with the vehicle effects units (laughs) speaking of the vehicles dying a lot of these vehicles on screen just get destroyed in the film so were you Feeling the pressure that if you didn't get these recordings, there was no second chance because the vehicle was about to explode? Uh, partly. Well, I mean, the truth is that actually for a lot of those vehicles, there's two or three of them. There were three war rigs, for example. There were two giga horses, that Immortan Joe vehicle, that monster mm-hmm. truck. There was two of them. Um, one ran on pure ethanol and the other one on Avgas. So... There was a pressure. I mean, I suppose I, I was also using that pressure to try and get the powers that be to say, yes, you can have this vehicle. Because I was using that as an, ex- you know, an excuse, ah, yes. but it was a truth. I mean, you know, you need to, if you want these recordings, then we've somehow got to make a plan and get these vehicles to us because once they're done, they're done. 
I mean, with the interceptor, Max's interceptor, there was two of them, but the one of them was written off on the very first day of filming. That crash that you see at the beginning of the right film. Right off the top. Yeah. Right off the top. That was they that was the first thing we did. <laughs> um that was when I kind of me personally was really like, geez, now I see what we're involved in. You know, uh, kind of up until that point I hadn't seen the vehicles. You know, we had been in our compound putting our truck together working out what gear we've got, you know, trying to kind of get testing and stuff done. But that was the first day on set, and that was when it kind of all hits as to the temperature. You know, we were out in the middle of the desert. It was boiling hot. And just the grand scale of the stunt work that was about to be undertaken. So how did you approach the temperature and the dirt? I'm not quite sure if I ever did deal with it. Put on suntan lotion, um... <laughs> And just accept that you're going to get dusty and dirty and you need to shower at the end of every night. Um, <laughs> I, it didn't really... Gear-wise, though, was there any issues with the gears? No, that's what I'm just trying to think. It, it didn't really ever present a problem with the gear. I mean, the, the, the stuff more for the main units, um, the, what Ben was doing, the pods that we had inside the war rig that picked up all the radio mics operating within the vicinity of the traveling truck, that would just get absolutely covered in thick amounts of dust. And that even had it in built into the case that it was in, an air conditioner on top to try and keep the stuff cool. So that would logistically... And the thing was big and heavy, and it was always who drew the stru- short straw about having to go and retrieve the thing and move it into <laughs> a different truck or whatever, because fortunately we didn't have enough of them to just have in each of the war rigs, so we kept having to kind of shuffle them around and try and work out which war rig was up next. <laughs> Someone would suddenly go, oh, no, no, we're shooting with war rig A now and our stuff is in war rig B and is traveling in the opposite direction. But for me, for what I was doing in my bits, I mean, other than being sat on the back of the vehicle or in a vehicle and getting kind of dust coming in, I mean, it's nothing that I haven't really dealt with in doing documentaries and that kind of thing before. So that element didn't kind of worry to me too much. How long was the shoot? June, I went out. I got back just before Christmas. Oh, wow. Um, and then they then proceeded to do more shooting a year later in Sydney. So all the stuff of the Citadel sequence that sets the premise of the film, mm-hmm. that was shot a year later. Um, there were kind of plans to do it before, but I think they kind of... I th- George knew the importance of that chase. And that movie is just one long mm-hmm. car chase. And that's what he wanted to make sure he nailed. And yeah, and that's what we concentrated on in the beer. So did you go to Australia or did you just... No, I didn't, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Sadly, I was not. <laughs> didn't get that call. <laughs> How did they handle safety on the set? Because none of that looked safe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had a, a man called Sean Rigby, the head of health and safety, who you know, in hindsight, had a very stressful job because I suppose his <laughs> ultimate, his reason for being is to be a killjoy to everyone's kind of, you know, for all the right reasons. But, you know, anything that comes out of his mouth, it's about what you can't do. So um, I, th- I don't know. What was the the stunties? You know, they're all tethered onto the truck while the trucks are traveling. For us... I don't think we were ever really in anything 
seriously dangerous. I think I had the most dangerous thing that I experienced was when recording the vehicles. I was on the back of that monster truck, the one that does the stunts, the actual kind of monster truck looking one as opposed to the Cadillacs. And um, <laughs> the driver forgot I was up there and I hadn't strapped myself. There's a seat up there but I hadn't put a safety belt across because I got my gear on and stuff and it kind of just didn't fit. And I got bounced over a big, uh, well, it wasn't even really a big a hump in the road, but it was enough with the size of those tires and the suspension that I came flying off the seat, crashing into the guns that are mounted on there. And so I ended up with a few bruises and scratches. But uh, outside of that, I suppose the safety element was handled by good communication which, again, was something that came via Ben that kind of developed that key camera operators, George, ADs, they were all actually wearing radio mics. So aside from Ben having to worry about recording what um, effects and sync sound is traditionally, he was also running a comms mix so that everybody could talk to each other and kind of as the whole armada is moving, everyone could follow what was going on. The stunts guys also had, you know, lots of hidden earpieces and that kind of thing, but that was handled by the stunts department. But with their HOD calling, you know, I don't know what they call, <laughs> whatever it is they do to give their cues. But um, you jump on that car, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, you know, your cue that you jump now or do this or do that. Yeah, the thing that looked particularly unsafe was the uh, the guys on the freaking poles that were swinging around mm. from side to side, <laughs> grabbing people. Yeah, that's not something I would have liked to have tried, I have to say. <laughs> um, me and heights don't mix as it is, um, let alone traveling at those speeds and that dust and then that sun. Like what percentage of that stuff was shot like in motion versus kind of locked off? Do you know, like broadly? Well, obviously all the wide shots of the traveling armada is all completely in motion. The poles moving, I think even on the kind of mid shots and perhaps wider, it's all genuine the edge arm the camera vehicle had such a great reach and height that it could get in close to that kind of action to so just do it for real i think it's only when the um the expensive talent gets used that uh you kind of then have to start thinking about well, okay well perhaps we won't be moving this vehicle whilst we drop him off the side of it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you say that you've got this one vehicle rigged up you bought multiple war rigs. Are you having to move the mics back and forth between the war rigs or? Yeah, exactly. You know, time is short and the rest of it. The, the battle was working out what the shot was going to be. Therefore, where was a suitable place to go and hide microphones? The, the, again, this is about the sync stuff done on camera yeah. as opposed to mm -hmm. what I did. But um, yeah, find, finding those positions, derig, move it onto another vehicle, re-rig it and get ready for the next shot. So... I mean, there was quite a, we were a department of eight in the end. So, I mean, and our department kind of kept growing as well. You know, more people were brought on board. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big department of people running in lots of different directions. I mean, it was chaos. So there's no denying that when trying to shoot and work out what was going on with that many people in vehicles, it's kind of organized slash disorganized chaos. <laughs> So as a, we're recording this, the movie came out two days ago in mm. North America, at least. Is it, did it have the same release date for you? All of yes. It? Yeah. It's yeah. been the same okay. here. Uh, so it's getting universal acclaim, essentially. 
these kind of movies normally are crowd pleasers, but not critic pleasers. And this one seems to be across the board. And I was just wondering what kind of pride you're feeling based on that. Um, I feel kind of immense pride. Having done lots of movies in the past, I've worked on a couple, one I mixed, and so I helped out on another one. And at the time, I, kind of, I suppose it was, it was awe-inspiring and it was very difficult. Now I look back with kind of extreme fondness about the experience. At the time, there were moments when it really wasn't that fond. Um, seeing those reviews, kind of being a bit of a movie buff and you know, seeing the critics actually genuinely like him and those Rotten Tomato scores I think are probably kind of unheard of yeah it's amazing to feel that I was part of that and I think it will stand up as being a kind of a bit of cinema history as well I mean it's really turned around the contemporary action movie or what a contemporary action movie can be it doesn't have to be a you know a CGI Transformers fest the, the old school real you know hardcore reality stunts still make for great entertainment. Yeah, the interesting thing timing-wise is this comes out a week after Age of Ultron came out, and they're both big action films, but they're just so completely different from one another. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm interested to see how the numbers stack up over this weekend. Yeah, I'm hoping, I really hope that Max does the numbers that means the whoever the powers that be say yes to, I think three more have been kind of talked about i think tom alluded to saying he had signed up for three more wow i had a very bizarre experience when i went to go see this film at the theater i went to the local multiplex that has an atmos room mm -hmm. and uh i assumed that mad max would be playing in there and when i got there to buy a ticket pitch perfect 2 was playing in the room <laughs> with atmos which <laughs> i was like what what are you talking that's ridiculous <laughs> so instead i got the imax version uh-huh and uh, as I say, it sounded fantastic and so loud. I also had the awesome, I did an old man move where I bought the ticket and I was running late and I wanted to get in there and they turned this, for IMAX you actually buy a ticket for a specific seat in the theater and the, when you buy the ticket they turn the screen around and you push a, like it's a touch screen and you pick which seat you want and I got, I was just in such a rush, I didn't take a moment to realize of the graphic they showed me where the screen was on the graphic. So I picked the seat that I thought was near the back of the auditorium and it ended oh, up being like the fourth row. <laughs> Nose pressed up against the screen. Yeah, exactly. And it ended up being fantastic. The movie works when you're that I close. Did, it's interesting because I'm going to say going to go tomorrow and a bit later I'm going to book my seat and I went and purposely sat, I think, right in the middle. Um, yeah, when well, I that saw would be it. ideal, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But um, I was wondering about well, yeah, IMAX just so your periphery vision kind of gets filled by it, whether to go closer to the front. So you, you think that was a good call? I would rather have been further back. I was worried that I was just going to want to throw up because like right. literally <laughs> it filled my entire peripheral. Like I, I was freaking in the movie, especially when you add the 3D element into it. Mm. But uh, I thought that it was going to make me almost ill because I knew it was a race movie where it'd just be everything bouncing around and such. But it, uh, it, it ended up, I, I, maybe it was just the movie was so good that I just didn't notice any other things going on. <laughs> But yeah, I definitely felt like an old man. I ended up in the third row out of about 10. So, well, maybe there was 12. And I was in an Atmos theater, but it was like one of those with the big giant lounge chairs and everything. Like oh, we paid, nice. We paid 15 bucks each to go into this particular theater. And I really, it was my first Atmos film ever also. 
I really dug it, but I, I came away from it thinking that if you're going to see an Atmos film, you almost have to sit dead center mix position on it because there's so many panning moves that I know just kind of didn't translate to being on the left side of the theater. Um, and there were others that were pretty exaggerated, like like the guitar player, when the guitar player, you know, came up to center screen and then came off left and the panning went left. It was like really, really like obvious move to the left right. on him there. Just, I think, based mostly on where I was sitting in the theater. Yeah, I was sitting dead center and the pans didn't seem exaggerated to me at all. Yeah. Okay, Close, well, yeah. but dead I, center. I will take that advice then for my booking later. <laughs> 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 One thing... That, I can't get over it. It was two years ago since we did this. And kind of as the movie has been coming out now and the, and the kind of lead up to the press, I've been kind of trying to speak to different people involved in the, the post-production and kind of the, the when you start doing a little bit of IMDb cross-checking and seeing what they've done, I mean, there's been some very cool people involved in the audio post of this movie. And I'm, I would love to be able to take a flight over to Sydney and sit down and watch a kind of dialogue and effects mix with all those uh, people that that did the you know took the what we did and turned it into what you heard. I was chatting yesterday with Kate Cahill who worked did the sound design for Nux's car, so we were um, comparing notes about um you know what I did and what she used and that kind of stuff. But it, it it's kind of weird to me, say being on the outside, that these we I couldn't have these any of these discussions with anybody before I embarked on what I recorded. Going back to about, about what I'd done in the past, I mean, I suppose my this came about because I ended up on the the movie. First off, largely because of my kind of experience and having worked in live TV kind of situations, some kind of oh, hidden camera shows done a few outside broadcast stuff, you know, all as an assistance role. But when Ben was looking for somebody, he, he was wanting someone that kind of could was good at rigging stuff. You know, I, I was hired in theory as a boom operator. I think I picked up a boom and swung it once. You know, it was it was a kind of a big rigging job. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Like what kind of stuff were you having to do to do mounting mics and hiding mics? Like what, what kind of uh, things did you run across? What kind of problems did you have to solve? Problems that the that the main unit had was keeping everything out of sight. Um, I obviously didn't have that problem. I could do put anything I wanted in the vehicle. Um, I didn't have any cameras to worry about. But they were trying to keep stuff out of sight, stop it getting overheated and melting anything. You've also got all the practical um, props in vehicles, whether it be chains or whatever. Um, again, when I did my stuff, I would have to spend probably the first half hour emptying all the so-called junk, you know, out. <laughs> Anything that made a rattle or a creak that I could get out of the vehicle and strip out of it. So I'd take out and put to one side um, before I'd then start rigging my mic placements. And then wind, I suppose, was also a factor. This came up, I was speaking to... Um, Watson Wu, who you had on before, and um, Max um, Lachman. We exchanged some correspondence, and I said, look, you know, I'm looking at kind of doing this. What's your kind of advice? And prior to this, I'd recorded with a friend of mine here in Durban, Tristan, the Boom Library, Everyday Cars Library. Yep. So that was kind of, that was my first and only experience of a sound effects recording in this way. 
you know, I went along to go and help out Tristan. We rigged up a load of everyday cars, stuck mics on and, and recorded them. It was at that point I kind of learnt, realised the importance of paperwork, which I became very anal about. And from that, what I learnt that there was what I then applied to recording the Max cars. And the problem with where we were filming was there were lots of, you could get a lot of very windy days. So combines the actual real wind with the traveling of the vehicle and you've got a lot of buffeting and all that kind of stuff going on and not very convenient places to try and attach microphones. So I went up with DPAs, lots, you know, small heads, Rycote fluffies were my absolute savior. Got a lot of the personal wind jammer personal lav wind jammers, the long head version. I think they then subsequently did a, a shorter head one. So I made sure that they dug out some old stock for me when it, they were much bigger and puffier. And I could literally then just stick them wherever I wanted, push them in, you know, open up air intakes and shove it right inside, right by the turbos to get as much um, separation as, as I possibly could. That's exactly kind of what I was curious about was was the mounting and the microphone choices that you were making and, and where you were putting them. I, I just recently came off a Porsche record where I was really running into mic placement and sound pressure level and wind, you know, problems that, that you know, were stymieing me here and there that I really had to solve. So I'm, I'm super curious about how you approach that stuff. Yeah, uh, kind of lots of experimentation i mean i spent probably two to three hours rigging each car so i i had two different setups there was the onboard recording where i would physically ride in the vehicle and we would go and drive it and that was then placing a lot of the dpas um around and i put my um sherps ms rig normally in the interior cab for a stereo interior atmos and i had some um magic arms which I kind of used to position the DPAs for the weird positions that the exhausts ended up. You know, these aren't traditional road cars where you find the exhaust just peering out underneath the bumper. They're sticking up in the air, out to the sides, you know, all manner of places. So trying to get a microphone in the optimum position that they're not being, the air being blown right across them, but it's getting the, the grunt off that exhaust could be quite difficult. And that's where kind of magic arms came into play. And putting, therefore, a lightweight DPA on the end of it was about the only thing I could do. Putting SM58s or something else was just going to be too big too big and heavy. The wind's going to hit it. We're going to hit a lump in the road. Things are going to bounce. The arm flops down and, you know, you're forever stopping and, and not achieving. It would, be, it would have been the better mic of choice, but not really practical to do. And then I also then had a kind of exterior recording setup where I then had 816s, 416s, again my Sherps rig, and also I buried a mic in the ground in the road. So dug up a trench, laid in a cable, um, I think that again was a DPA. So I'd have vehicles drive over the top of the mic at high speed or pull up on top of it and drive off again. That's cool. So to get a, just a, any different sound I could possibly create. So going back to the history of about how it came to be that we were recording them, was there kind of wasn't a plan about recording them. That <laughs> I had done this boom library stuff, so I kind of in my head, my head thought, well, this is a great opportunity. These vehicles, a lot of them are going to be in pieces by the end of the movie, and they've been built from the ground up. These are special vehicles. They're not just run-of-the-mill 
vehicles where you can just rob any kind of engine sound from. There was an element of recording the truth of the sound, if you like, which I think most people were kind of thinking that's all I needed to do. There was a lot of back and forth about explaining, no, this takes a long time because I have to go and rig five, six, I mean, I've got eight channels on the 788, so I was wanting as many different mic positions as I could on a vehicle, whether it be next to the air brakes, the turbo, the air intake, anything that made a unique sound during traveling or the driving of it, I wanted to try and capture that. It also allowed to say, okay, we're going to record Nux's car, but actually it might not be used as Nux's car. Mm -hmm. If I record this many different sounds, we can take this out of the mix, put that in the mix, and create a whole nother vehicle because there are many. I mean, there, like I said, there, you know, there are over a hundred vehicles, and I think I, tr I was counting up earlier how many I did. So I recorded thirteen cars, fourteen bikes. I went at it thinking, well, okay, yes, this is that car, but it can also be this car and that car as well. So I asked, rather than just saying, please give me the hero vehicles. A lot of them were the hero vehicles, but I said, can I have the vehicles that just are sounds interesting, unique? So you know, the buzzard cars, the spiky things you see at the beginning of the film, mm -hmm. um, that one had a Subaru um, Impreza engine in it. So they've got quite a unique sound, as I learned to so say before this, I wasn't a petrol head. So, you know, it was a lot about speaking to the mechanics and the guys that had loved these vehicles, building them over the course of years, some of them, I mean, the, the head mechanic Mark had been on this movie in its payroll, I think, was it f over five years? You know, and he built so much stuff that when they were going to start sh shooting in Australia and then it was called off and then they'd taken it all apart again and then they chipped it out of Namibia and then started building stuff again. So it was really about trying to, you know, speak to these guys and say, you know, what is it that you love about this car that makes you really excited about it? Point me to the sounds that it makes that I'll try and capture its persona. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you do the war rig? I didn't record the war rig, funnily enough, um, because the actual war rig in reality had a diesel engine in it and a single one at that. So we didn't see any point in trying to... Record. I think subsequently they did. I was chatting to one of the sound effects editors yesterday who said there were some subsequent recordings of it, but I didn't. I actually recorded the Giga Horse twice. What I found out from speaking to the mechanics was that they could change some mechanics of it. I, it was completely lost on me about what it was that they were doing, but they could change the sound of the engine and they put different trumpets on the exhaust and the trumpet note changed. Huh. So And because that was a twin-engined vehicle, petrol, which is what the war rig in the movie is supposed to be, that was the reason why I decided to record the Giga Horse twice in its two different states. So the Giga Horse stood in for the war rig sound? Uh, when I recorded in it. I don't know. <laughs> in theory. Yeah, that was my theory that I was applying. Um, where What was used to happen thereafter, I don't know, because Kate, who I was chatting to, didn't handle the war rig, so... Yeah, I'm not quite sure what happened with what they did use for the war rig. So you recorded 13 vehicles, a bunch of bikes. How much faster were you on the last vehicle you recorded compared to the first? Like, I'm assuming each one you're gaining knowledge and figuring out things. And you said that it took you multiple hours to set it up. Was the last one half the amount of time or did each one, no, were they all just so different that? They're all so different. 
they've all got their own kind of just cabling complexities about where you're going to run all those XLR cables without melting them, without them flapping around in the wind, or I don't think it ever sped up. You know, <laughs> uh, there were a couple of times when I started to rig a vehicle and then you get a call on the radio going, oh, actually, sorry, we need it back on set. So quickly rip it all off. You've just spent, I suppose I was quicker the second time we went to go and put it back on again. <laughs> that, that was about the only only occasion. I mean, they were all literally so unique. I would kind of split it across two days. You know, my work day cut to getting up at 4 a.m., travel an hour to set. We'd have breakfast. Uh, my first job of the day being, I mean, I was the vehicle effects recordist, but I was also kind of the sound department coordinator, commonly referred to on set anyway as the truck bitch. I don't know whether that uh, <laughs> <laughs> gets applied, but I, I lived in the back of our seven and a half ton truck loaded with sound gear. We didn't, you know, it wasn't like a normal movie, I think, where, you know, there's the sound van. We had a massive truck just loaded with everything that Ben could ship out from Australia, you know, PA gear, you name it, it was in there. Um, so I would sort out jamming, you know, locket boxes to um, the satellite time code, which was a whole VFX issue as well about our time codes matching their stuff to uh, help with the visual effects. And there were six cameras on the main unit, so probably another six cameras on the action. I mean, there were a lot of ARRI Alexa cameras, which all had to be have locket boxes put on them because the Alexa, although has pretty good internal time code, for some reason, Ari didn't implement it so that when the camera was switched off for more than 20 minutes, it retains that time code. So uh, we set locket boxes on every camera. It didn't matter if it was going to come out and play that day or not. Jam the time code so that if someone suddenly said, well, right, we're going to use this camera for that shot, it didn't need intervention from us. It was, it was already ready to go. So I would deal with that all in the morning, send the main unit out to go and play for the day. And then I would kind of get my stuff together, pull my gear to then go and rig a vehicle, which would normally kind of take, you know, say two, three hours to rig it, rig up all the onboard mics. Then we'd go out and record, and that was probably another four hours or more. And then I would kind of have to be back home again by six or seven before the main unit wrapped and, you know, kind of got back towards the end. I was going even later and, you know, they were having to come back and sort themselves out and uh, leave them to it. The Gigahorse, I was just looking at my sound reports from that and I think I started recording at um, nine in the morning and I finished at six in the evening. Wow. I'm going to say that's because we had to do kind of two passes at it for the war rig as well. That sounds exhausting. It kind of did get very repetitive and exhausting, which is part of the reason why I kind of broke the system down into spreading one vehicle. So the vehicle would be normally on set filming. It would come back at the end of that day or that afternoon, and I would then start trying to rig, rig it and cable it, or at least look at what I was going to do for the following morning so that my whole time wasn't spent just on one vehicle because you kind of yeah, you zone out it all becomes a little bit too much. Also, it was me and um, Matthew stuck seven, eight kilometers away from the unit base with just us and some bottles of water. <laughs> so it's, you know, it gets, it gets a little hot and depressing out there sometimes. Can you tell us a little bit about the post-documentation process and any editorial you did once you were once you were back and dumping the files? Were you doing that on the set? Like, how are you maintaining the files that you recorded and handing them off? The research I kind of, preparation I did going into this was that having done that boom library stuff, I kind of knew that the paperwork was key. And having previously worked, you know, in TV and 
post-production and edit suites. It's a great idea. You can just, people go, oh, you can just go and grab that car for 20 minutes, go and point a microphone at it and record it. And I was like, well, that's all very well, but unless someone knows where to find that material and it's clearly marked and there's consistency, that was my most important thing was about whatever I decided I was going to do, I was going to do each vehicle the same way so that when an editor was working on the Nux car, they would see that there would be somewhere a recording where I decided that I was going to run the engine at 50% revs for 30 seconds or whatever it may be. So I came up with a clear plan of, I think it was about 30 sequences that I would record and every vehicle would be done the same way. And that became very important about then about file naming. So again, people could find stuff because the 788 wasn't going to allow me to write a long description about this is this vehicle doing this, doing that. So I came up with a kind of a, a Bible that was used to clearly show the routine and they could go, right, I need the ripsaw doing X amounts of revs or doing a transition going up the revs or then down the revs and they could look on the Bible and go, okay, that's that file number. Also within the sound reports, clearly label the mic position of every single mic as much in case I had to go back and do it again and I knew what I'd done previously. And also they could go down the track list and go, okay, that mic position is that sound. And every day at the end of recording, I just pull all the stuff off my 788 onto my laptop. And I actually didn't hand off any rushes until the very end. I just gently collated everything together, sat in the evenings and sometimes did my sound reports and just made sure everything. I'm kind of pedantic about that kind of stuff. Having kind of been on the receiving end of it, although not in an audio post-production, but you know, in edit suites and looking after Avid's. It, you can have the most fabulous recordings in the world, but if no one knows how where to find them when they want them, then they'll never get used. You've got to allow whoever's going to use this stuff to find what they want quickly and it require the least amount of intervention from them. And that was kind of always key in what I did. Yeah, I'm looking at one of your sound reports now. It looks very, very clear, the one for the people leader. Right. And you've got, you know, you've got a mix down on tracks one and two of the whole thing, which I always find super useful for onboards. And then it's broken out to, you know, left cab interior, right cab interior, engine exhaust, trailer one, trailer two, rear air brakes, drive overs. I mean, it seems like if I was the editor, I could, you know, if I was the editor, what I would probably do is I'd probably take an intern on this and chuck it into SoundMiner and have all of that spit out from the sound report, basically into metadata, into SoundMiner, and then I'd start mining it that way. Right. So this is all stuff that I know nothing about. And I was kind of, and Stephen, now I would love to follow the process through because this this was always the frustrating thing is, is that we go and in, launch into this stuff without having, we didn't know who was going to be handling audio post-production. There was no one I could talk to. So I just made my kind of best guesses about being as thorough. And there's probably way more audio I recorded than anybody ever wanted but I just kind of went worst case scenario and persisted with saying to people, let me do it this way. It will pay off dividends in the end because the less time people spend looking for stuff, the more time you can be creative, which is obviously well, what they're there to do. Oliver, you sound like a dream location guy. I love your attitude. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, if, if I was the editor, I would be super happy with this level of documentation and I would probably have let you know. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Uh, it's good to hear. I would say, I mean, it, it was just, you know, using years of 
an educated guess and having come from a TV background that um, I don't know, I think it helped. Fast turnaround TV stuff. You kind of got to be good and clear with your paperwork. You didn't do any other editing after the fact. You basically just took no. the raw files with the metadata on them and handed them over. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I actually don't know how to operate Pro Tools. That's probably not a good thing to say. But Well, I mean, you don't have to do it in Pro Tools. They're just tools. No, so. no but I'm saying any. I've never handled any post-production whatever. My All my experience has always just been at the location front end hand off the rushes. The the thing that stood me in good stead through my work to date was when I did those Globe Trekker Lonely Planet series was I was staff at the company and that's how I never had any formal training that I learnt on location but was able to follow the process through and talk a lot with post-production guys to find out what worked, what didn't work, which is why I found it kind of difficult in this situation that there was no post-production team set up from the audio side at the time of doing this. So every say everything was about trying to best guess and overthinking it perhaps and being overcautious. The reason for doing it was because, you know, those takes are also they get on camera, they're getting interfered by cameras or whatever else. But also you've got to try to find yes, there's a gear change in there or that happens, but it's not kind of documented like that because it's in the middle of a take with all sorts of other stuff going on right so how can anyone go and find that moment so i wanted to give a kind of there's your bible of everything that you could ever want to piece together to add to what was being done on camera by the main unit i, I think the work that you did really ended up showing through in the mix in spots where there were like obvious gear shifts and you could see them shifting up and down it's funny ge gear changes were one of the things that were a constant battle because actually in reality a lot of those cars had automatic gearboxes. So they didn't produce anything. We've become so sensitized by watching the likes of the Fast and the Furious that we expect these certain sounds to come with a gear change, which in actual fact, most of these vehicles didn't do. Even when their engines are running, is they're kind of, once they're at however many RPM, the pitch doesn't change. Were they just continuous drive or how did that work? Well, so th this is where I kind of had, and this is how I broke the Elvis vehicle because it overheated. So when I was doing exterior recordings, I would sit the car in front of me, set up then the 416s and 816s statically around the fixed car and then run kind of, you know, just rev the engine at different speeds continuously and then go rev up and then rev down and try and fake a gear change for what, but you know, foot off the accelerator and quickly back on to kind of get that noise. Right. Because it didn't do it naturally. It's not, you know, with these auto gearboxes, it was kind of drive and that was it, um, which doesn't sound that dramatic oh. in reality. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was one of my, uh, yeah, constant things. And I remember trying to do that with the Giga Horse one day. And again, these cars and particularly like the Giga Horse is that huge, when they designed it, they were um, thinking about, you know, the car is going to be, the engine's going to be running at those RPMs for that amount of time, but it's going to be traveling through air, which is going to be cooling it. And now I've just sat it in 40 degrees sun, and we've been running probably already 20 minutes recording, and I've got it just running at however many thousand RPM for one minute, please, Mr. Driver. Don't take your photo off the accelerator, just keep it going for one minute of clean, constant sound. And uh, yeah, that's when things start to overheat and break. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, there's so much about this movie. Oh, there's, I mean, there's like, there's story stuff I want to talk about too, but I mean. <laughs> this is the kind of the great thing about it. It's just meeting so many people that are kind of so enthused about it, whether they're film buffs or not film buffs. I mean, I was watching the Twitter feeds last night. People are tweeting about deciding to go out and watch it or not watch it. And, you know, kind of it's equally divided between the sexes as well. It's not just a, you know, going to the man cave, you know, all outs. Yeah, I thought the characters were very well balanced throughout. Mm. If we're just going to totally diverge and talk about story for a minute. The really interesting part to me was when, uh, what's the, uh, here's the, here's the hard part about talking about this movie. No one says anyone's name. Yes. <laughs> it was hilarious when the credits started rolling and they're saying who played who. And you're like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> I was because I was trying to figure out if it was the kid from About a Boy that played Nux. Yes. Uh, Nick, Nicholas Holt. Nux. Yeah. My, my son fell in love with him. <laughs> they, those two had a big, long, fat chat. <laughs> so there was a, there's this moment when a Morton Joe is talking to one of the main war boys about go jump jump on this car and I'm going to spray you with chrome and you're going to be the most badass guy in history and I will personally walk you into Valhalla, right? Yeah. Um, That's Nux, I believe. Yeah. Is that Nux? Okay. Yeah. yeah, played by Nicholas Holt. That moment to me was like the classic filmic heroic moment and it was being executed by the bad guys. And then in that moment, I'm sitting there going, you know... With any other setup, I would be totally, and I and I kind of was anyway, rooting for this guy to go execute that. Go do this thing, man, because that's cool, you know? Yeah. Um, I was very kind of conscious of what my emotion was at that moment. I was like, wow, they just totally flipped that upside down on me. And I think that's, I thought that was like a really kind of cool moment in the film where they where they showed enough motivation and, and humanity and reality in all of the characters to make you not sure who you're rooting for or not and to and to really cause you to root for somebody that you shouldn't be and then and then have to pull it back. I thought they just did an excellent job mm. with that Nux arc all the way through. Yeah. I, it was such a privilege to I mean just George is such a gentle soul. Um I don't know how when he's just turned 70 now he's fitter and sharper than many of us. And you just wouldn't know that this was uh, when he was what, 68, he had his birthday out there um, when we were in the middle of the desert. I mean, he just kind of went on relentlessly, whatever was going on around him, you know, he had his vision and his memory is so sharp and his attention to detail. The, the, the level of detail in all those vehicles, the interior of the Giga Horse, for example, I mean, it's fleetingly seen, but the door panels, the, I mean, the door panel was covered in hundreds of different car manufacturer name badges from, you know, American muscle cars. You know, kind of you'd think kind of needless detail, but it's all there and it's all because George said it needed to be there. And, you know, and his then Colin Gibson, who charged production design. There was nothing about that film that um, was, you know, done, oh, that'll be okay because you won't see it in the wide shot. There was none of that attitude at all about anything, which was what made it very difficult about trying to place microphones and even to the point transmission, transmitter antennas. So on some radio mics, we put external antennas on them, sprayed them black, trying to hide them into the top of the uh, duff wagon, for example. You know, all of that stuff had to then be, you know, make sure that, you know, it couldn't be seen and it didn't interfere 
you know, even though it was on a big wide shot and we were like, well, you know, come on, who's going to see that? And I was like, no, we need, it's got to be right. Yeah. It seems like you'd have to dress some of it up, chrome it out or something and <laughs> hide it out there in plain yeah. view. <laughs> well, there was a lot of, there was a bit of that, you know, is yeah, trying to make the antennas look like they should have been, you know, on the Duff wagon from the beginning. You know, even all those drummers, they're all wearing hidden earpieces. They're all drumming along to a piece of music, I think was actually written by Iota, who's the guy on the front of that thing playing the guitar. And that was, a, you know, the, there were working speakers in that speaker stack as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I want that car. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to park it is a little bit of a nightmare. I think. Yeah, I would think. But outside the unit base or one, one of the location unit bases, they had to dig out, oh, I think it must have been... 12 feet deep, kind of a, a ramp downwards. So that truck could drive down underneath the telegraph wires and then the phone wires and then buck up the other side. But uh, I think at one point it did hit something it wasn't supposed to. <laughs> um, when I recorded, I didn't actually record the genuine Duffwagon. That Duffwagon was originally a, I think it was an old NATO missile launcher. Kind of, you know, back in the 80s, Cold War, you were seeing the films the russians had those yeah big trucks in the snow it was one of those and they bought two of them so one became the duff wagon i don't there was only ever one of those the other one was used on set for hauling around whatever so given that it was the same engine and everything about it that's the one i went and recorded rather than trying to take the duff wagon out because my recording location i had spent a lot of time first of all trying to find somewhere that had long enough straight so i could run a vehicle at 40, 50 miles an hour continuously and get a third, you know, one minute of recording without it having to slow down, turn around and come back again. And also then didn't have speed humps in the way and also then didn't have telegraph wires going over the top. For example, trying to bring in the people eater. It's not as big as the Duff wagon, but it's still a tall truck. I've got to make sure I can get it, drive it in somewhere and also turn it around to do runs back and forth. And that in itself, you know, just the physical logistics of, Recording vehicles that size that aren't on a test track or an airfield, which you'd kind of normally do this thing kind of thing is what I did before, just means everything is incredibly slow. You know, that that people eater has got two trailers on it, as you said, and there's the prime mover at the front. Trying to turn that around, you know, kind of takes a good 10 minutes in itself before you then even think about just running it back and then they go, oh, the driver misunderstood. You didn't want me to do that. Okay, let's do that setup again. So... It took a very long <laughs> amount of time. Wow. Oh, I, I looked up my folders on my drive. So 231 gigabytes of audio I did in the end. That's not bad. In the, at the time, unfortunately, the sound device's firmware for the 196 wasn't available. So we, the most we could do was 96K. I kind of would have liked to have, probably would have been needless, but in some places, you know, could have been useful for helping play pitching stuff up and down more if we'd done a, a higher frequency rate 24 bit yeah 24 bits yeah oh the the bikes actually they they became quite a i had to basically build my own homemade dyno rig to try and record the bikes um, which went through several different permutations with a lot of help from the bike fabrication guys we ended up taking the bikes and strapping them onto the tail lift of their unit truck then mounting so the front wheel was wedged up against the back of the truck and strapped down 
and the back drive wheel is then on some rolling wheels to try and record those bikes as much as possible with the engines under load because we noticed that if you just sit on the bike and rev the engine it doesn't really sound as much. Mm-hmm. you know it's very high end and it's not very interesting sounding the moment you put a rider on it it was great so we were like well okay try and put a 788 in the backpack but then i've got you know issues i'm not going to get the file metadata input correctly and you know being strict about starting and stopping for different setups and it's kind of dangerous what if the the rider falls off and he's got all these cables coming out the back and something so we kind of built this rig on the back of the trailer and <laughs> furiously we would be spraying water on the wheels trying to keep the temperature down of the rubber on rubber and also spraying onto the engine again there's no air running across the engine and then we started getting fans from the special effects department the kind of silent so-called fans to blow onto the engine at the same time so that you know each every time you thought recording a vehicle or something should be quick you would find a very good reason why it was never going to be and it would take (laughs) a lot of trying to thinking around around how you're going to solve that problem with the facilities that you had available and again the the mechanics and all those guys were great they put aside a lot of extra time you know they had enough you know hard enough work schedule as it was trying to keep the vehicles that they were putting on camera running without worrying about me coming around and then saying right can we do this for this day and you know take up your time because that's only the night before they found out that some a stuntman had broken a vehicle and actually they'd been up all night trying to fix it and now I've come to them in the morning saying right now I need to take all your time doing this so it was you know it was a good team effort and it really was important and great that they were so invested in it and that was kind of what made it fun to do was it was I was trying to do justice to their work because a lot of these guys had become very attached to their vehicles and would you know kind of become their children and they weren't going to see them again so they were like keen that we recorded them and did justice to their creations. And that was kind of cool to, to do that for them. Now they're immortal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they will live forever. And wait to see whether they appear in any other future episodes. I, I'm not even sure where they I know some of them are in Sydney because they had a big show before the premiere. They, they were driving the Giga Horse and I think the War Rig were outside Sydney Opera House. I'm sure they're all sitting in a warehouse waiting to shoot the next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure in the uh, timelines where the next one goes. That was t- That's a good point. Yeah. yeah it point. was mention of um, a prequel to Furiosa, but being an animated thing. That was what was talked about, I think, years ago, whether that's now the case. Yeah. How long before number five goes into production? I have no idea. And I'm sure I'll be one of the very last to find out. <laughs> Was Charlize actually driving that rig? Um, you know what? Don't answer that. Tell me about the horn. <laughs> <laughs> Did she really have her arm cut off? Yes. <laughs> method acting. Method acting. Yes. Right. <laughs> now, the, the, um, I'm not sure whether it was the effects guys or who developed this. So they, they developed these drive pods, which basically had mirrored all the driving controls of that truck but into a separate pod, which then could be put either on the front of the truck or the side. And the stunt driver would sit down there driving the truck while the actors were doing their thing in the truck, if that makes sense. That's smart. 
Yeah. That's great. I, I don't know whether it's ever been done before. The bit that I read in the article was that they hadn't been done before was that they then developed a braking system on the pods. I think it was for the people eater when it crashes Guy Norris, who was in Mad Max 2, I believe, as a stuntman, then became the second unit director. And he they developed this thing. So when they crashed the truck, the inertia of going from 60 miles an hour into something stationary, the, the pods would keep on moving with a dampening system on the brakes. If that kind of makes sense to so... Hmm. The, the the braking on his body and the straps and the harness and everything else wasn't like a 60 mile an hour truck hitting a brick wall uh, but there, there was a lot of very clever technology and very clever people who really made this movie come to flourishion and meant that it wasn't just a CGI Transformers kind of fest you know there, there was a lot of science and a lot of engineering from, from very smart people Thanks to everyone who listens and participates to the show. Thanks to Oliver for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Stacey Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Thanks to everyone who goes and clicks on our Amazon and B&H links, because that's awesome and that really helps us out. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders. You can go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment, or you can also find us on SoundCloud. Check us out at Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. See you guys next time. See ya. See ya. Cool. All right. So enjoyed this. This has been good. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneVendorsPodcast.com. Cool. Yeah, that's dude, those stories are awesome, Oliver. I think cool. it's, it's gonna be fun to chop this one up. It'd be nice to uh try and leverage this to get some work to go into another one <laughs> being, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm freely available to travel the world and <laughs> for your next movie <laughs> hire oliver at yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's the email address i should have created <laughs> go and see it <laughs> i think we actually had a pretty good wrap-up earlier and then we started all back yeah up we again. just started talking yeah well, you know what i'm probably gonna i'm probably gonna movie magic this edit here oliver just fyi <laughs>